For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. Two new species of electrified eels were identified in South America recently, one of which has the most potent electrical charge of the 250 known electrified fishes in that part of the world and of any known to science. These eels, which are actually a type of knife fish, can grow to 8 feet in length. Hopefully you can see them coming. Beyond the simple fact of how cool these fish sound, I'm amazed and excited that we're still finding new creatures, especially ones this big. Makes you wonder what else is out there. And, in a way, gives you some assurance that there is plenty of adventure to be had in the world. Now, this part may shock you. Electric eels in the Amazonian basin have captivated Western scientists for hundreds of years. In fact, electric eels inspired a fellow by the name of Alessandro Volta, an Italian physicist, to design the first battery way back in 1799. And this supercharged eel now bears his name, Electrophorus Volti. But the eel puts old Alessandro to shame by producing an astonishing 860 volts, which, according to the New Jersey Electrical Contractors Association, is plenty to kill an adult man. In fact, this eel producing 860 volts is producing more than 11 times the voltage needed to kill an adult man. <laughs> but don't worry, although E-Volti packs more than three times the voltage of a typical wall socket, it likely won't kill you. Depending on the conductivity of the contact surface, of course, and the fact that this eel is only producing one amp, which is low flow, so to speak, that wall socket will be in the 10 to 20 amp range. Alessandro Volta, the physicist, not the eel or knife fish, his first batteries weren't even strong enough to produce a spark. Considering these Amazonian eels were first described 250 years ago, maybe Alessandro should have found a stronger eel. 
Of course, batteries have come a long way since then. Just ask the folks over at Steel Power Equipment who happen to power this podcast. They're using batteries to power professional chainsaws, even saws like a normal guy like me uses. Steel 140 is my personal chainsaw choice for the back of the truck or the side of a mule. This week, we've got carnivores, the Bahamas, Dorian's aftermath, the strange sexual ways of honeybees, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about elk this past week, looking at photos of bulls on friends' phones and answering calls with, you get your elk yet? It's that time of year. The elk rut has begun here in Montana and everywhere else elk are found. The magical, musical, and sexual time when elk compete for, uh, you know, sex. Or if you want things in purely biological terms, compete for the opportunity to spread their DNA. Currently, over a million elk reside in the U.S. We should talk about this as the places where elk can be found have changed a lot in North America. In fact, many of the places I currently hunt or have hunted elk were completely void of elk only a short time ago. Prior to European settlement, an estimated 10 million elk roamed much of the continental U.S. as well as a large part of Canada from coast to coast. European encroachment literally ate up elk without game management agencies' unregulated hunting for meat and hides and habitat destruction reduced the total population to an estimated 50,000 animals and completely extirpated them from much of their native range. What the market hunters, settlers, and native peoples couldn't kill and eat were pushed into new and seldom-traveled terrain. Elk scattered to pockets of sanctuary high in the Rockies and the Pacific Northwest, especially thick, timbered, steep slopes, areas where feed was scarce but people were too. These holdouts were eventually used to reestablish populations, starting here in the West and then moving into the Midwest and even states like Missouri, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Pennsylvania. In 1914, 50 elk were delivered to Pennsylvania by train from the Wyoming side of Yellowstone Park for only 30 bucks a head. Interestingly, over 100 years later, a resident of Wyoming pays $57 for an elk tag. If you aren't familiar with elk hunting, a tag dang sure doesn't guarantee an elk. So the $30 for a whole live elk sounds like the steal of a century. If I stop and think about it, I've hunted Wyoming elk in Montana, Idaho, Oregon, and New Mexico, but never actually in Wyoming. Kind of a head-scratcher, I'll admit. If you don't know what I mean, take a look at a map and look at where I'm at in Bozeman, Montana. Now that I've bored you with that, I'll get back to the sex. The rut can mean different things to different people, but it only means one thing to elk. The rut is the time elk compete to spread their genes through sexual reproduction. Elk compete with each other and entice each other through a huge range of vocalizations most commonly broken down into the human terms of bugles from bulls and mews from cows and calves. Take it from me, there is a wide range of vocalizations in the language of elk love. And now is the time to go listen. I encourage you, whether you are hunting or not, to go to the refuge, state park, monument, or national park nearest you with an elk population and listen to some of the coolest animals in the woods. You will hear an elk bugle with more than just your ears. You'll hear it with your whole body. Experience what active conservation, cooperation, and management from state and federal agencies as well as conservation groups have done to partially restore this iconic and tasty animal to the landscape. Moving on. 
U.S. Fish and Wildlife just approved the import of a horn, hide, and skull from an African black rhino. There have been five rhinos imported into the U.S. after nearly a three-decade-long hiatus. Three under the Obama administration, and soon to be three under the Trump administration. The rhinoceros, to which the parts belonged, was legally killed by a U.S. hunter from Michigan. Black rhinos are considered critically endangered, with just over 5,500 remaining in the wild. Namibia houses more than half the population and currently allows five animals to be hunted each year. The Michigan hunter importing the parts drew heavy criticism for killing the 29-year-old male rhino. For example, the Humane Society of the United States was no fan of this hunt, which is no surprise since hunting any species at any time draws criticisms from the HSUS. But I'll admit, hunting a critically endangered species sounds wrong to just about everyone at first glance. According to the Endangered Species Act, it is illegal to import any trophies of an endangered species unless doing so would help the survival of the species. This appears to suggest that importing the Michigander's trophy rhino parts has been determined to help the survival of black rhinos. But how could killing one of only a relative few critically endangered animals help the survival of said animals? Seems counterintuitive. We need context. The rhino in question was hunted and killed on the Mangeti National Wildlife Park, where he was seen by wildlife officials as a threat to the rhino population's ability to grow. Apparently, the 29-year-old bull was successful in running off other breeding-age bulls while not quite being able to get the job of mating done himself. For that reason, the old rhino bull was specifically selected to be taken out, killed, lethally removed from the population. The hunter paid a whopping $400,000 to pull the trigger. That $400,000 now supposedly supports ongoing efforts to protect and restore black rhino populations. The meat of the rhino was apparently distributed to people living around the park. You may have noticed a few seeds of doubt sprinkled in those last couple of sentences. I have supreme faith in wildlife agencies myself, but doubt almost always creeps into the conversations when talking hunting and conservation in Africa. Is the $400,000 actually doing good for wildlife? Did the meat really get eaten? Is the hunter a hunter, or did he pay to kill? Is this conservation? I don't have the answers to all that, but I do know that poaching, not hunting, has been the largest driver of black rhino decline. Poaching is not hunting. We can debate the reasons people hunt, but people poach for monetary gain. In this case, to satisfy the demand for rhino horn. Rhino horn is sold as a medicinal cure for hangovers and uh, lazy libidos, not to mention being just a status symbol in some cultures for the ultra-wealthy. I don't know about you, but no matter how hard my mornings get after long nights, I haven't come close to grinding up a critically endangered species to shed a temporary headache. Of course, I won't be paying $400,000 for hunts either. I'm not defending or condemning African trophy hunting here, but I feel it's important to draw clear distinctions between poaching and hunting and point blame for species decline where it actually belongs. Whether you believe in paying huge dollars for rare animals or not, it's hard to ignore the fact that, in this area of Namibia at least, the black rhino population is rising and poaching is declining, either despite or because of their regulated hunts. A lot of people think that getting life insurance means you're insuring yourself for yourself, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's insuring yourself for your family. So if something happens to me and I'm not around anymore, 
I can have more peace of mind that my family can have some financial support. And that's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. More than once in my life, my journey, people have described me as an independent person. And that's how I want to stay even when I'm dead. That's how I want to be remembered. That's why I have life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without on X. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Now, keeping with theme here at the Week in Review, old poop. DNA from the parasite Toxascaris leonina was recently discovered in the desiccated feces of a puma in South America. This DNA evidence suggests that the species of roundworm, still common in the guts of modern dogs, cats, and foxes, has been around for nearly 17,000 years. Prior to this discovery, folks thought that wild carnivores contracted T. leonina from domestic cats and dogs, but this shows that the parasites were in that part of South America before humans, so wild cats and dogs were carrying them around long before the process of domestication even started. One family of animals that have never been successfully domesticated are Ursidae, or bears. Unfortunately, too many bears have been conditioned to turn to people or are a refuse for food. The old saying, a fed bear is a dead bear, once again came true here in Montana. State wildlife officials had to euthanize a 300-pound male grizzly last week after he became conditioned to humans, likely because campers were careless with their food and trash. Lewis and Clark National Forest District Ranger Mike Munoz says the bear approached within 20 feet of people. Though the bear hadn't acted with any aggression, his continued pursuit of easy meals near campsites posed a potential problem that rangers just couldn't ignore. So even though the bear hadn't done anything wrong, he had to be put down. 
because people were acting out of either ignorance or carelessness. Just something to think about when you head out there into bear country. I mean, how many of these stories do you folks need to hear? Quit feeding the animals. Oh, bother. Here at Meat Eater, we think a lot about what we eat. So I was surprised to learn that, up until recently, evolutionary biologists hadn't really looked at the evolution of diet across the animal kingdom. When a group of researchers at the University of Arizona finally did so, their findings proved surprising, at least to some. Spoiler alert, carnivores are king. But before you start getting all high and mighty, recognize that you are not a carnivore. No matter how much flesh you choose to consume, you're still an omnivore, which puts you in the smallest minority from an evolutionary diet perspective. The recent findings published in the Journal of Evolutionary Letters suggest that carnivory is the most common diet among all animals, living and extinct, at 63%. Herbivory, like eating plants, comes in at 32%, and omnivory, which is eating plants and meat, accounts for just 3%. Before you start typing furiously about my mathematical failure, the remaining 2% were considered ambiguous taxa, meaning the researchers aren't sure where they fit. I've got a uh, few friends like that. The study also suggests that many of the carnivorous species living today share a common ancestor that dates back 800 million years, a single-celled organism that filter-fed on bacteria. Herbivory, on the other hand, seems to be a much more recent evolutionary development, and omnivory is downright freakish. While it may seem like animals with indiscriminate diets would have a leg up on the competition, it doesn't actually work that way. And if you think about that one buddy we all have who will eat absolutely anything no matter how long it's been sitting out on the coffee table or hidden back the fridge, that makes sense. Moving on to our pollinator desk. I'm not trying to get too zoomorphic around here. That would be the opposite of anthropomorphic or assigning animalistic qualities to humans. But speaking of that one buddy, he or she may make other questionable life choices beyond the dietary. I'm specifically thinking about behaviors around sexual partners and the finding, attracting, and maintaining of said partners. I don't know about you, but I have a number of friends with spotty histories in that department, and it appears that male honeybees do too. New research shows that male honeybees inject their partners with toxins that cause temporary blindness. And no, I'm not talking about tequila. <laughs> The researchers hypothesize that temporarily blinding the female bee prevents her from flying away and mating with other male bees. While this may sound like the female bee gets the short end of the stick in this whole deal, keep in mind that she'll go on to live for many years and start a whole colony of her own, while the male will be dead in a matter of minutes or hours. Despite his best efforts, she'll likely fight through the temporary blindness and go on to mate with a dozen or more other bees. So I'd say she comes out ahead here. I know our Florida desk must seem like it's the size of a Vegas buffet table, considering how much coverage we give the state. Some of you may remember that I was over there earlier this summer filming an episode of the meat-eater fishing show Das Boat with my buddy Ed Anderson. If you follow this show and you watch that episode, you know Florida is dealing with some water management issues that have resulted in nasty stuff like unnaturally large red tides, seagrass and oyster bed die-offs, fish kills, and huge toxic algae blooms. The reasons behind all of this are complicated and generally misunderstood. I don't have time to break it all down for you, but if you've been wondering exactly what the deal is with Florida water, we just published a fantastic article over at TheMeatEater.com titled Florida's Water Crisis. Is new leadership finally turning the tide? 
It's a comprehensive breakdown that would give you all the info you need to know about what's going on with Florida's fisheries and what's being done about it. Jumping slightly east of Florida, let's take a minute to talk about the Bahamas. At this point, I assume that all of you are aware that Hurricane Dorian decimated the northern Bahamas, Abaco and Grand Bahama in particular, but I'm not sure if we're all really apprehending the totality of this storm. The New York Times reported, in this part of the Bahamas, nearly everything is gone. Hurricane Dorian didn't just upend life, Dorian crushed it. There are no public utilities and no reliable sources of food or drinking water, and there's no sense when those needs might be restored. Our buddy Chris Dombrowski has spent a lot of time in the Bahamas and even wrote a book about the history and culture of sport fishing there. He told me on the phone, it's all your worst nightmare. The need to get people off the islands is imminent. Chris has managed to fly some of his close people to Florida. At this point, Bahamanians aren't even thinking about rebuilding. They're just trying to get away. It takes an extreme situation to make people leave their homelands with nothing but the clothes on their backs. When most of us think of the Bahamas, we picture pristine sand flats crawling with bonefish, sweaty calic beer bottles, and conch fritters and salad. Whether you've fished there or just always dreamed of fishing there, this whole massive hurricane thing might seem like kind of a bummer. But let's all just take a breath and realize that the devastation this storm unleashed on the residents of those islands is far bigger than that fishing vacation you were really hoping to take one day. A fishing buddy of the Meat Eater crew, a guy by the name of Josh Mills, came up with a hell of a good idea. Josh has never been in the Bahamas, and he's not what you'd call wealthy. He thought to himself, man, I don't have enough money to really make an impact on this problem, but I do want to do something. So he sat down on his fly tying vise, spun up a dozen steelhead flies, and decided to auction them off over Instagram to the highest bidder and donate whatever he made. Then he realized that there's this whole big community of fishing folks out there, and if he could get them working together, he might be able to do something meaningful. So he did what the kids do these days. He started a hashtag and put the word out there into the social media land. As of this writing, hashtag Dozen for Dorian has over 30 different fly tires donating collections of their work. We even got in on it here at the Meat Eater and tied up a baker's dozen flies, jigs, and lures that we auctioned off. This is such a great example of the outdoor community rallying together to help folks in need that it makes me feel just a tiny bit better about the world. Hunters and anglers are a generous bunch, and we rally around our own. I invite all of you to dig a few bucks out of your beer fund and send them to people in need. You can bid on some flies on Instagram, or just go ahead and make a donation to a relief organization. The other day, I talked to Jim Klug, who's helping coordinate one of those organizations. The Double Hall for Dorian Relief Coalition is partnering with Bahamanians who work in the fishing industry to get relief supplies directly to their communities. As of September 10th, they'd managed to get three plane loads of supplies into Abaco and Grand Bahama. But as Jim told me, this is not a problem that's going to be cleaned up by the time it's fallen out of the news cycle next week. We're working on a long-term effort to help people survive and rebuild their lives. So donate if you can, but also don't give up on your dream of fishing these islands. They will rebuild, and they're definitely going to need those tourist dollars in the years to come. And don't worry about the bonefish either. They just move to deeper water, and they'll be back up on the sand flats as soon as the crabs are. That's all I got for you this week. Thanks for listening to Cal's Week in Review. Go to anywhere this podcast may be streamable, downloadable, or shareable. Leave me a review by hitting that furthest right-hand star, and be sure to let me know how I'm doing at Ask Cal 
at TheMeatEater.com. That's A-S-K-C-A-L at TheMeatEater.com. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend as well. I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access to your populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.